Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Affairs Podcast. I'm Dan Weiser. I'm Evan Meyer. And we are editors of Nashville Affairs. Nashville Affairs is a quarterly journal of essays on domestic policy, political economy, society, culture, and political thought. It aims up Americans think a little more clearly about our public life, rise a little more capably to the challenge of self-government. This published jointly by Nashville Affairs Incorporated and the American Enterprise Institute. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Alex Bosmoski and Nate Hoffman. Alex is the Vice President for Programs at Deploy US, a nonprofit organization that promotes bipartisan climate policies. Nate is an Intercollegiate Studies Institute Fellow at National Review and a recent graduate of Colorado College. For our fall 2021 issue, Alex and Nate authored an essay arguing that Republican and conservative opposition to confronting climate change has been detrimental to both US climate policy and the right more broadly. But as they write, for the first time in decades, the prospects for conservative climate leadership are looking more hopeful. Leaders are turning a corner on climate policy, helped along by a new force in climate politics, what they call the eco-right. Alex and Nate, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, guys. Delighted to be here. All right, guys. So um, we're going to start naturally with where you open your piece. Um, you have this line at the start that says, climate change didn't always divide Americans along partisan lines, which is perhaps surprising given the state of the debate today, which we'll obviously get into. But um, you note that in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, quote, Educated conservatives were actually more likely than liberals to affirm the claim um, that scientists believe warming is man-made, and that legislators on both sides of the aisle were invested in tackling the issue. How do we get to this point? How do we get to the point where climate change was such a divisive issue, when previously there seemed to be more kind of consensus on it? Sure, yeah. I mean, the process of climate change becoming a a partisan issue that we discussed uh, to a certain extent in the piece was that essentially climate change as as a sort of political issue became increasingly associated with any number of other largely unrelated progressive causes. So everything yeah. from abortion to labor union policy to uh, immigration, right? I mean, if you look at any, all of the major environmental groups today, you know, if you go to the website of the Sierra Club, there's much more about any number of other left-wing initiatives. There is as much about that as there is about anything, something like climate change. So there's a ton of different important political forces, and there's a lot of different ways that you can tell the story of how climate change became a partisan issue. But essentially, it was this sort of self-reinforcing process where as climate change became more and more associated with a certain class of left-wing activists, the right became less and less receptive to the idea that climate change was a serious issue. And in turn, as the right became less and less receptive, it became more and more a purview of the left. Um, so that sort of set the scene for the the situation that we're responding to in the essay. But the the optimistic message, I think, the takeaway from the essay is that we're also, there are signs that we're moving past that moment and that conservatives are returning to their their roots on conservation, not just with climate, but with a lot of different issues that have to do with uh, environmental conservation. So it was a way to remind conservatives that it's okay to be concerned about climate change, that it's not this inherently liberal issue, um, and that as recently as the 90s, uh, it, it was an issue that was not inherently left-wing. Nate was on to something with the self-reinforcing alienation, as I think pro- like progressive causes find it easier to use climate change as a pretense for other things they want to get done, to borrow the urgency from it, because on like the list of proactive government interventions that conservatives want to find urgency to get done, the list is shorter than the list on the progressive side. Mm. Um, so it's like a more natural like issue to, I mean, the pejorative way to say it would be like to Trojan horse 
but that did create this like self-reinforcing problem. And then at the same time, there were a lot of, inter- you know, in politics, it's always easier to try to stop stuff than to try to move stuff. Yeah. And so interest groups that found a self-interest in trying to stop stuff, you know, found really fertile ground to be able to sow disinformation into a debate that just continued polarization. So it, it's really unfortunate that we've found ourselves in such a polarized conversation around climate change. Yeah, I, I wanted to follow that up. That sounds, you know, dark and dismal, but the piece is really optimistic. And, uh, you know, you guys talk about specifically this kind of group of people that is spearheading an effort on the right, and you call it the eco right now. It's my understanding you actually coined that term back in 2013. I guess I'm hoping you can help listeners who maybe never heard of the eco right understand what in the world you're talking about. You know, how did eco right get started and, and what has it accomplished so far? Yeah, Evan. So, you know, when, when, when I started to get involved in this stuff, you know, gee whiz, Nate, how old were you when, when 15 years ago, uh, was, it was a while back, but yeah, the, not, uh, not engaged in uh, climate politics yet, certainly. <laughs> um, but, you know, there, I'll just say, you know, it started really, really small and there was just a, a there were some intrepid conservatives that wanted to press back against the status quo and, over time, you know, there's a lot of segments of the American, you know, center right that are natural audiences for leading on on climate and conservation issues. And over the last decade, that really snowballed. And there's a lot of good reasons for like good. There are a lot of tailwinds and a lot of headwinds that we could talk about. But it's been remarkable to see the rise of of the the eco right over the last decade. And now it's becoming a political force to be reckoned with, a source of of power. And that is resulting in, I think, more positive like opportunities for the United States to pursue decarbonization with wise with wise policy. Evan, you said it was a it was an optimistic piece, and I, I think I'd say it was a, a cautiously optimistic piece. But to be clear, we we should be honest about where we are as conservatives uh, who are engaged in, in in climate policy. The Republican Party and the conservative movement is not where it needs to be. On climate policy, not even close. I mean, it's you hear sort of outright denials that climate change is happening a lot less than you used to, and that's certainly progress. But there's 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 a little bit of political movement. Like in 2018, you saw Kevin McCarthy and the House GOP come out with a, a modest but symbolically significant climate package. There's some interesting stuff going on right now with particularly some of the moderate Republicans in the Senate, but the institutional GOP is has not yet even quite embraced the idea that climate change is even an issue they should make a priority. And to be fair, you know, I don't think climate change is really an issue that Republican congressmen are hearing about back home when they go do town halls from Republican voters either, right? It's not a priority for Republican voters. And it's understandable given the history of climate change being used as a, as a bludgeon to beat conservatives into submission over any number of issues. Uh, I, I understand why conservatives have that reaction, but Part of the piece was trying to explain why that reaction, while understandable, is ultimately wrong or irrational, and to show that there is a better way forward for conservatives, and you don't have to embrace all of the things that the left wants to do to act on climate, to engage on climate policy. So it's, it is a new movement. The future is uncertain. There are a lot of political forces working against Republicans, but we're, we're also convinced that if Republicans don't engage on climate policy the outcomes will be worse for any number of reasons, because we're going to see a, a hot political issue that's really important to young voters to the left. We're going to 
you know, we believe conservative policies work, right? And we believe that progressive policies are often ill-designed. So we are going to cede climate policy to a side that is going to implement much worse policies than what we think is, is the right thing to do. And, you know, just from a moral point, we're going to stand by apathetically as we continue to degrade the wonderful natural environment that we as Americans uh, are inheritors of. So there's any number of reasons that it's important for conservatives and Republicans to engage on climate change. And we think that it's, there's a way to craft that in a, in a, as a message in a way that's compelling, but it's, it's still unclear exactly how politically effective that's going to be in, in Republican politics, at least in the, in the foreseeable future. Yeah. And Nate, just to follow up on that, you go into your piece with Alex about concerns that conservatives have about focusing on climate change, not just that it's been used to advance other issues on the left, but also kind of some foundational philosophical questions. You know, you even have the quote in there that says climate change presents unique challenges to the foundational assumptions of Anglo-American conservatism, and specifically talking about climate change is such a, a global national issue, or I really, I should say global issue. Whereas conservatives tend to focus on localism, subsidiarity, devolving power to the smallest level possible to the one closest to the people. How does the eco-right answer those kind of concerns um, on the broader right um, who think that, you know, focusing too much on climate change can kind of detract from other conservative goals? And maybe Nate, we'll start with you and, and Alex, we're free to jump into. Yeah. So the first thing to say, to just to be intellectually honest, and this is what we tried to acknowledge in, in the piece, in the section that you're quoting, is that climate change just inherently as an issue does present a challenge to the conservative framework for thinking about politics as we've traditionally understood it, right? Climate change is an inherently international issue, and it is one that crosses borders. Uh, it is one that affects you regardless of place and the community that you're from, um, and is something that to a certain extent, although certainly not as much as, as the progressive left wants it to be, requires a certain amount of international coordination and a certain amount of international thinking. But with that being said, the, the second part of that is that that does not require the sort of cosmopolitan policies and the internationalist policies that the, the left often uses climate change as a, as a precursor to, to advance. There, are, there is a way to have a genuinely nationalist and uh, oriented towards the national interest approach to climate policy that, again, is largely being left on the table because conservatives haven't engaged with it. There are any number of national security concerns, for, to take one of many examples, that climate change is going to affect in, in the coming decade or two. Uh, and for just being someone who cares about the American national interest, we have to engage with those if we're, if we're interested in protecting America. So there are you know, refugee crises. If you're someone who's, who's an immigration restrictionist like I am, you know, I'm really, really concerned about hundreds of thousands, if not eventually millions of refugees showing up on America's doorstep because of destabilizing conditions in the Southern Hemisphere, right? Like that's something that for, for conservatives, particularly of a certain kind of nationalist variety, that's something we need to be concerned about. So you can go down the list of issues and talk about why this is relevant to conservatives and why engaging on climate change is something that is necessary to preserve the permanent things that we as conservatives care about. But it's also understandable that conservatives have the adverse reaction to acknowledging climate change as a thing in the first place because it is an issue that affects people in Africa, just like it affects people in, in the United States, and is also something that our, our grave enemies are in, in China are, are experiencing, right? So it's, it requires a certain amount of bilateral thinking, I think, that is generally been anathema to conservatives. I think I do, I do want to add one thing to what, what Nate was saying in, in terms of the challenge of approaching this issue. And that's just that 
it's really hard to set objectives for for climate policy. But setting objectives lends really well to ideology. And to the extent that like conservatives are in some respects an antithesis of ideology and that like we don't have if you have an ideal and that ideal is, you know, a cricket salad on every plate and a, and a bicycle for every commute and a solar panel on every roof. And like, if, if you can build, if you can envision the ideal that you want the government interventions to help effectuate, it makes it easier to set a, a very specific objective mm-hmm. for like pursuant to decarbonization policies. And, and of course, I'm not being super fair to our you know progressive friends that obviously have like a very well thought out what they would call science-based goals based on like different decarbonization schedules that meet, you know, what they perceive to be like science-informed targets. But all of those science-informed targets rely on very deeply ethical variables about like how much we value tomorrow versus today or other countries versus our country or like how averse we are to risk, how optimistic we are in technological change. Like there are all of these things that are really like you can't simplify them into, you know, a platitude and have that platitude lend to any like (laughs) reliable objective. But of course, like politics makes you try to do that. So, I mean, in one sense, our objective, if if we could say state it as like wisely navigate the trade-offs of climate policy to, you know, you that's about as good as we can do. And the the bummer with that is it sort of forces us into what can be a kind of a dehumanizing framework of like translating everything, like beauty and various like and species and like community and all of these things into like dollar figures so that we can compare the cost of an action versus the cost of an inaction. And climate change kind of forces us into that uncomfortable arena in order to navigate the wisdom of different trade-offs and like decisions. And that sucks, but like I guess one of the points that we make in the piece is well, we just kind of have to deal with it because that's just the situation here. We, you know, we have a philosophy that's sort of rooted in place and community, and 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 we have a problem, the source of which is global. And so it's gonna be kind of uncomfortable, but thankfully, there are like other principles that we go on to discuss that help us navigate those trade-offs and help us navigate what kind of government interventions best fit with conservative principles and can you know best help us like minimize the risks and maximize the benefits of taking action on climate change because you know like it or not and a lot of conservatives you know might not like it yet but the country has decided that we are doing stuff on climate so we can either help decide what that is or we can just whine and cry about it on the sidelines as the as as the you know progressives implement climate policy without us at the table which is kind of what happened you know for the last decade. So yeah, like we've just been talking about sort of a conservative worldview and and why it's important for conservatives to be at the table, but you know, once they're there, what are the sort of things that they're often proposing? You know, how is the eco-right approaching these issues? You all talk about in your piece some kind of leading policy tools from taxation to subsidization and deregulation. But you also point out that, you know, advocate scholars, civic enterprises, the groups that kind of work on this vary widely in their preferences for, for policy methods. Alex, I was wondering if you could get a little bit more into sort of the, the policy world here. You know, how do people on the eco-right actually talk about 
improving the climate from a conservative perspective? I mean, what does that even look like? Well, first, the, I mean, the, the first distinction to make is there's mitigation and there's adaptation. So there's there are a number of things that, you know, state and local governments have to deal with that in terms of preparing and minimizing the losses that we expect from from the impacts of climate change. So that's adaptation work. Nate and I talked mostly about mitigation, which is sort of reducing the net costs of those climate impacts through like by reducing the greenhouse gas emissions over time or reducing or sequestering or capturing the greenhouse gas emissions that cause that cause climate change. We tried to fill a, a niche that like was kind of needed, which is just a really simple overview of the policy options. And basically, it, you know, you can regulate the bad stuff, you can subsidize the good stuff, or you can tax the bad stuff. And because the government has done more and more and more stuff related to, you know, all these various kind of niche interventions based on the benefits of clean energy or the cost of pollution over, over time, like the accretion of government, there's a whole nother category now, which is the inverse of all those things. So there's deregulating the red tape that holds back the good stuff. There's unsubsidizing the preferential treatment kind of that's baked into the system in favor of the bad stuff. It's also possible, you know, you can untax or reduce the tax burden on, you know, clean energy or, or emissions reducing technologies. And as the government's been more involved, you know, as the government's just grown inexorably, the, the emissions benefits for smart deregulation and smart unsubsidization have actually grown quite a bit. So there's a lot of red tape holding back clean energy. There's a lot of like baked in subsidies for polluting and incumbent industries that, you know, if removed just with by having fairer, freer, more level playing fields can, you know, achieve quite a lot of emissions reduction. So I think conservatives tend to gravitate toward the emissions reducing benefits of smart deregulation, smart unsubsidization, and then there is a, a faction of the eco-right and, and one to which I belong for a long time and, and, and Nate does too, that very much sanguine on the benefits of taxing pollution instead of taxing things that we want more of like income and labor and capital. And so, but th those are probably where most of the most conservatives kind of congregate um, is in desubs, you know, deregulation, de unsubsidization, and and taxation. Yeah, I, I was just going to add to Alex's point. There are a number of effective climate policies that aren't at all objectionable from the standpoint of traditional conservative first principles. Right? There's an enormous amount we can do from just cutting red tape for clean energy. I mean, something like the nuclear sector which has an enormous amount of potential to decarbonize the economy. There's just so much that we're leaving on the table in terms of very silly, unnecessary regulations from, from the federal government in particular, and to a certain extent at the state level. So those things, the problem in terms of Republican politics, the practical political problem, is just getting conservatives and Republicans to make it a priority, because very few Republicans are going to object to deregulating a clean energy sector. Uh, they just need to be willing to spend time writing a bill to do it. But the, the, the sort of more controversial policies, and these are things that, like any coalition, the eco-right disagrees on. I mean, there are people in the eco-right who are for a carbon tax, there are people who are against it. But that's the, the stuff that I think is much more uncomfortable for conservatives to think about. And you can make the case to a conservative that a carbon tax is the most conservative way to solve climate change, but it's still a new tax on a pretty significant aspect of 
one of the most foundational aspects of, of, of how American society functions in the 21st century. So even though it's more conservative than what the left wants to do, it's still something that conservatives, I think, understandably blanch at, despite the fact that, that Alex and I think it's ultimately going to be the way to go. Yeah. So Nate, just to follow up on that, in terms of the divisions on the eco-right, you mentioned the piece, these kind of two camps, you've got the incrementalist camp and the vanguardist camp. Incrementalists being those on the eco-right who just want to do kind of what is possible in a bipartisan way, and also focusing more on things like research and development and kind of smaller policy wins that can have short-term uh, benefits. But then you've got the vanguardist campus says, no, you know, pollution and climate change is a serious issue. We need to address that now with, you know, more, kind of more sweeping policies. That's the right way to put it. Maybe using the carbon tax as an example, how something like that divides the eco-right into these two camps. Yeah, I mean, carbon tax, I think, is the defining example that defines the two camps, right? Because the vanguardists are essentially defined. There are other subtler ways to explain the difference, but essentially the vanguardists are defined by their support for a carbon tax and the incrementalists are defined by their skepticism of it. Now, the incrementalists and the vanguardists can agree on a lot of other policies in terms of things that the Republican Party could get on board with tomorrow. But the the people who want a more aggressive and taxation-oriented approach, the argument in their favor, and in our favor, just to be clear, to put our our, our cards on the table in terms of the fact that we have a bias, although we tried to explain, I think, fairly the the different camps in, in our essay, the argument from our end is that A, if we don't do this climate policy, the, the climate policy that's going to come around the pike from the left is going to be worse. And B, that if we don't do this policy, the effects of climate change are going to be significant, potentially in our lifetime. And the policy suite, the package being offered by the sort of more incrementalist side is not going to be enough to actually get where we need to be in terms of decarbonization goals. The argument that, that is entirely legitimate from our friends, I think, on the other side of this argument is that that's all well and good. But if you spend all your time pushing for a policy that's never actually going to get passed because you're sort of an idealist, rather than just getting past everything that you can now, you're actually further away from your goal of decarbonization. So we should spend all our priorities on actually getting stuff passed that's going to at least put a dent in American carbon emissions and, and national carbon or international carbon emissions, rather than spending all of our time sort of making the, the perfect the enemy of the good, essentially. And this is a, an ongoing dialogue, but the the, the broader point of our essay, and I think Alex can probably speak to this better than I can, is, is the sense that while we're not going to agree, agree on all of this, there's an enormous amount of things that we can do to work together to advance our shared goal of a conservative climate policy uh, and a conservative climate policy agenda for the, for the 21st century. Uh, Nate, thanks for clarifying. Alex, I was, I was hoping, could you explain just in, in real, like kind of hard-nosed policy terms, how a carbon tax would even work? I mean, I think a lot of listeners, myself included, are sort of confused about something like that. I mean, what would that even look like? How do you tax carbon? A carbon tax is just a really simple way to in, you know, internalize an externality. So the, there's, there's two main market failures in, with respect to climate change. Um, the vanguardists are focused mostly on the pollution externality. That's a, the market failure. And the, the efficient way to deal with that is to put attach the costs of pollution to the, you know, in the economy, um, so that consumers and businesses make decisions you know, with the full costs of their actions, like baked into the to the price. Um, now, of course, like there's there's a lot of economic theory that would never be that would never be optimal in practice. But like the the mechanics of how it works, it really simply is you'd go upstream to 
the mine and the wellhead and the import terminal. And you'd in probably a text form the size of a note card impose a uniform price on CO2 emissions based on the carbon content of whatever fuel it is. And then all of those prices would permeate through the entire economy as you move down from through the supply chains and to the consumers. So it's it's a very, there's no like monitoring equipment required like there is for regulations when you're, there's no, you don't, the government doesn't have to keep track of what kind of equipment different factories are using or like the efficiency of any power plant or what, you know, how much gas you're pumping. You just attach the costs of, combust, of, of the CO2 emissions combusted after combustion all the way at the top of the cycle. So it probably means like 3,000 facilities in the whole country. The result of that is that it raises a lot of revenue. And so typically when conservatives are, when typically when vanguardists like organizations and, 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 and economists, and there's like an incredible amount of economists that are conservative economists that have been for this, including folks in the Trump administration. But typically what the, the proposal is, you know, to tax the externality upstream with a really small government footprint and recycle the revenue into tax cuts, into growth oriented tax cuts. So we know, or we probably very much want less pollution. So you tax pollution. We know, and we can all agree that we want more income, more jobs, more productivity. So you use the revenue to untax income or capital or productivity. And I mean, that's generally how the proposal proposal sounds from, from Vanguardist organizations. There, there is a, a segment, I should say, that thinks that you should recycle the revenue by just sending checks back to people. So that, yeah, that that's comes, what I was going to add. Uh, and there's, a, there's, the, like a, there's a populist way to make that argument, right? Which is that you're ta- taxing you know, uh, major corporations that are emitting things that are bad for the, for the environment and then basically sending people something approximating like a, a UBI which is another way to sell it potentially to voters because UBI is often uh, a popular proposal because everyone likes getting sent money. So there's a, a variety of different ways to do it, but either way, it's the least sort of central planning way to, to try to decarbonize aggressively. And that's economy-wide. I mean, you can do that. Like, the, the, and that's like probably one of the big distinctions here is that you know, the vanguardists are looking for the most efficient economy-wide policy instrument that doesn't require kind of Picking and choosing the most, you know, the like a particular industry or a particular sector for like focus for industrial policy or for government investment, it is very much like requires the least knowledge, of, like the least government like predictive capacity to implement and and achieve benefits. When you guys say economy wide, that's not just the national economy either, right? I mean, this attacks like this would would affect. The, the, the whole global economy and it actually caused some of our competitors in the international space to, to be, you know, have to respond to something like this too, right? Yeah, I mean, we can, we could spend a whole other podcast talking about border carbon adjustments, but this is, this is like the, for anyone who's, who's interested in sort of China hawkishness, right? Like the, the way you stick it to China, China's the number one global emitter by far, by far. The way you stick it to them is by decarbonizing and then taxing. The EU is, is, is implementing a, a border form of border carbon adjustment right now. And what that means is that it essentially imposes a carbon tax on all of their trade partners uh, who are trading with them who don't have a domestic carbon tax. If all of the major countries that were trading with China essentially 
did something like a border carbon adjustment, that would really, really hurt China and their ability to be competitive on the sort of international stage in terms of the global economy in a significant way. And this is why it's interesting. I mean, I've talked to some staffers at a couple of different Republican senators' offices who are known for their China hawkishness, who aren't particularly interested in climate change, but they're really interested in border carbon adjustments because they understand that it's a really, really significant and effective way to go after China. Now, it's it's difficult to do a BCA without a domestic carbon tax. So that's a whole other conversation. But this is another way to talk about climate policy in a conservative way is that a carbon tax isn't just something that affects domestic production. It's also something that could be globalized. And particularly with a, a country as powerful economically as America, uh, implementing a domestic carbon tax would be a big deal for global decarbonization because it would affect everyone that we do trade with. Well, I, I want to I want to follow up and ask, so far we've talked about how there's some divisions within the eco-right. You know, You guys have identified yourselves as vanguardists. But of course, there's also these incrementalists. And the, the real kind of thrust of the piece is to say these people can work together. A lot of the differences in the eco-right are more tactical than philosophical, although there are important sort of contrasts and first principles, as I think often underlies these, these debates. But the point that we were trying to make towards the end of the essay is that in the abstract, in a vacuum, a kind of conservative climate agenda could be attractive to people across the conservative perspectrum from sort of wonky market-oriented libertarians to serious social conservatives and, uh, and, and nationalists, right? I mean, there's a, there are ways to talk about climate policy in a language that can be appealing to any number of different factions of the conservative movement. And that's why we think it actually is so promising for a, a very divided conservative movement Republican Party to embrace the issue, because it is something that, if pitched the right way, and if you make the case for it in the right way, it could be appealing to a lot of conservatives who don't seem like they can agree on that much else uh, at the moment. And I, I might add to that one thing Nate said earlier. One way to kind of envision this is that, you know, in, in a sense, there's vanguardists that are, we're well practiced at the Hail Mary passes. I mean, we're running, they're running patterns into the end zone every play. But there's also folks that, you know, that are, moving the line of scrimmage down the field. And the further they move it down the field, the more likely it is that you can get balls into the end zone. The biggest like point, I think, and I'd love to hear what Nate thinks the biggest point is too, because we might have different ones. But like my favorite point that we make in this piece is that even though it seems like these are different camps and that on the eco-right, we're at cross purposes or we're trying to achieve different things, in fact, the success of each, the power and like the civil society power of each camp makes the other one stronger. And this, I don't think this is just like a kumbaya wishful thinking. In fact, like incrementalists that are focused on the wisest government interventions, the most technology neutral, most deregulating, the most pro-growth government interventions achievable now that can, those things tend to be things that stoke American innovation that solve for the research and development market failure, which simply stated is that private companies and individuals will underinvest in research and development because they can't capture all the benefits of that work. So that is an appropriate role of government because it is a you know legitimate market failure. And those incremental policies can best address that market failure. And the vanguardists you know, like on the on the carbon tech side, that is the best policy for mass adoption of existing technologies. 
But boy, that works better if there's a lot of great low zero and negative carbon technologies that exist because we've broken through that yep. research and development market failure. And boy, that research and development market failure, solving it makes a hell of a lot more difference if the cool tech that's invented has a pathway to mass adoption. Otherwise, it's just like for the museum of low carbon technology. So like these two approaches, you know, you need, you can't, you can't score touchdowns if you don't have wide receivers and running backs. Like you need to be able to pursue both of these at the same time. And we draw from the same reservoirs of civil society. All right, guys. So as we start to wrap this up, you've already alluded to the differences between the incrementalist and the vanguardist, but also have kind of offered some potential ways they could work together. You, of course, mentioned the idea that there could be a fusionist consensus on the eco-right, like there was with the traditional right you know, that kind of emerged uh, pre-Reagan era, I guess you'd say. What does that look like for the eco-right in the future? What, what are things you're looking at going for the next few years, next decade or so, that can indicate that there is this kind of fusionist consensus on the eco-right on climate issues, whether it's research and development, the carbon tax, et cetera? I know you've said there's, there were some wins for the incrementalists in the recent legislation at the end of, of 2020, but we haven't really seen a carbon tax or anything like that on the table. So what are you guys looking for? in the next few years to see if there is that kind of fusion on the eco-right? I think one thing that we're looking for uh, is generally just getting the institutional GOP to treat climate change as a serious issue that needs to be made a priority. I think that sounds like lowballing, but obviously that's a prerequisite to to discussing any of the, the broader points. In the meantime, though, everything that Alex was just talking about in terms of what vanguardists can do to lay the the institutional and political framework for a future in which we could have a GOP that was, that was favorable to a carbon tax and the incrementalists in terms of all of the different things that you can do in terms of advancing clean energy technology and making the political case for it with the GOP. Like Those are all things that we can do to build the infrastructure for when there's a political moment that's favorable to the kind of climate agenda that we'd like to see from the GOP. So it's sort of two things happening alongside one another. One is happening largely in civil society, which is all of these different institutions, different individuals making the case for any number of sort of conservative climate policies in newspapers and magazines, all of the things that it takes to build a political movement that most people are probably familiar with. That is how you build a, politi- a political agenda that I think is, is, can end up being something that Republican politicians are sympathetic to and Republican voters ultimately are, are sympathetic to. And then pushing the Republican Party in the right direction so that eventually those two parallel paths can kind of converge in a way that produces uh, prudent, serious, conservative policy on climate that can present a, a viable alternative to the, to the left. What you got me thinking of is what, what's that sports adage, the best defense is a good offense? Well, we've been, conservatives are used to playing defense on suboptimal climate and environmental policies. And the eco-right emerged in order to play offense, to, to show the country that conservatives can lead on these issues in a way that respects life and conservative principles. But where I hope we get it right now, where eco-right players are playing offense, it is a good defense, but we have to play defense on two fronts. Like there's defense against the like progressive environmental left. There's also defense against quite a few and some pretty powerful stinkers on the right. You know, we've, we, we have our hands full here with a lot. I mean, the, the, the meanest stuff written about me and my, my last job, which was more public facing, like about my friends and stuff, the meanest stuff comes from, from the right, not, not from the 
especially not from like the moderate uh, center left. So I, I want us to get to a place where we're playing offense and that's a good defense against the environmental left so that the like net effect is some points on the board for decarbonization and like America. And for that to happen, we're going to have to get, <laughs> we're going to have to settle this on the right so that we can all be kind of, or mostly moving in the same direction here toward like offering the country pragmatic solutions to climate change. Alex and Nate, uh, this is a super fun conversation. Um, I think you, you know, both um, in your essay and coming on the podcast here, you've given the right a lot to think about in terms of why care about climate policy, but also how to do so. And so we really appreciate you uh, coming on and explaining that for us. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. If you'd like to read Alex and Nate's essay or other articles in National Affairs, please visit our website at nationalaffairs.com and consider subscribing. In addition to a printed copy of National Affairs, subscribers retain unlimited access to our online archives. And you can listen to more episodes of our podcast by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcast apps. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at National Affairs. Thanks for listening.